Well, to start, let's uh, let's start at the beginning as it relates to KVMR. Tell me the story of how you got here. How did I get to KVMR? Yeah, maybe how did you get to Nevada City first? Well, my wife really wanted to get out of the Bay Area because there was a uh, murder in a house, uh, two houses away from us in uh, in Oakland near um, Mills College, and which is not considered that dangerous of a neighborhood, but it just really freaked her out. And uh, so we started looking around and, you know, we went to, uh, oh, I'd say about eight different cities. And the only one that we were interested in was Nevada City. What year was this? Uh, that would have been 19, 1990. Were you hip to this area or did you guys kind of just look at a map and say, let's go here, let's go here? We were hip. At the, well, actually, not necessarily that hip. I, although I had been here, Duxbreath had come here and played in 1983 or 1984, and we remembered it as a, a great show that was in front of uh, Jonathan Richmond and a couple other people that we knew uh, up here, and and that was really kind of cool. And then uh, when uh, uh, our, my wife and family and I came up here to, to just look around. It just, it just fit what we were looking for. This was right after Roseville, where we were trying to get back on the road, the main road out of a, a, someplace, like a subdivision where we looked at a house. And it took a really long time. <laughs> so for people, you mentioned Duck's Breath. For people who don't know what Duck's Breath is, tell us about that. Duck's Breath is a screwball comedy group that started at actually at the University of Iowa. Uh, I met them through another friend of mine who is a, a writer when I was the editor of the Daily Iowan before I had left and I worked with the Quad City Times for two and a half years or three years, something like that. That's the city paper? The Quad City Times is the city paper of, well, four cities, Davenport, Iowa, Bettendorf, Iowa, Rock Island, Illinois, and Moline, Illinois. And anyway, it's that, that, so it's called the Quad Cities, sometimes called the Quint Cities if you count East Moline. Got it. <laughs> so you were working there as a reporter? Yeah. And then I, when I left there and went to Europe in the summer of 1975 with two of my college friends, and we just had a wonderful time. But people were sending us mail because there were a couple places that we were staying at for several days. And I got a letter from one of my friends talking about this marvelous comedy group that he uh, had helped get booked in Iowa City. Uh, and when I got back, I got a chance to see them. I was really impressed. And uh, the paper that I worked for said, "Go, yeah, sure, go ahead and write a feature and we'll give you, you know, a freelance fee. And so I talked to them and did an article about them. And they were so impressed, they asked me, I mean, this is, that's what the, this is what they say. They were so impressed, they asked me to become their manager and move to San Francisco with them. And it was uh, January, it was Iowa, and it was cold. So you didn't need much convincing. Exactly. And, I, and I'd never been to California at that time. And, you know, and yet I'd never been to Europe, you know, a half a year before this. And I just, you know, going, wow, this might be my next big adventure. And it was. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of being in San Francisco was that we moved a couple of times because uh, we weren't, you know, we were just starting to make a little bit of money. But 
Then we found a place that had five bedrooms, and we could get it for $700. Stop right there. $700. A month. Five bedroom in San Francisco. Yeah. This was 1975, 76, mm-hmm. the very beginning of 76. Mm-hmm. What um, neighborhood? You're going to love this. It was in the Seacliff neighborhood, which means that our neighbors there, well, first of all, when the owner of the house, this was, we got this from a rental agency, and when the owner heard that there were six men and uh, two women moving into the house, she went nuts, <laughs> literally. But the papers had been signed, and, uh, and the rental company had a lot of faith in us. You know, We'd actually, this was, this was actually, our, like I said, our third house there. So we'd uh, actually started to get a reputation among people who are into uh, comedy a la Firesign Theater and a la Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Those are the two groups that we were compared to the most. So why do you think the, the owner... Uh, she also heard that we uh, our mattresses were on the floor as opposed to being in proper bedding for Seacliff, okay? I see. Our neighbors were a private girls' school across the street. In back of us across an alley was the Japanese consulate's residence. Three houses down from us was the judge who ran against some guy named George Moscone for mayor. I've heard of that guy. Yeah. And then Kitty Corner from us and the last house before a golf course was the house of, well, they both used to live there, Paul Kantner and Grace Slick, but they broke up. And Paul Kantner was staying there then. And their daughter, China, would come and stay there on occasions. So um, what mark did you ask for? <laughs> so middle 70s, Seacliffs, a ragtag group of alternative comedy yeah. artists. What was the city like at the time? As one of us joked, and I have to give Leon Martel, one of the guys in the group, total credit for this one. We felt that we were part of the In the Hate, 10 Years Too Late program. <laughs> <laughs> And I was the first one that ended, was was living in the hate, and we all ended up in different apartments, mostly in the hate. The other thing that was we didn't like about us all living together was we felt like we were becoming the new monkeys. We spent enough time on the road. We, this, about, this is, again, around the time that we had started touring. Um, and we were driving from place to place, and, and I mean everywhere, mm-hmm. um, once, we, once word got out about us. So that was really... That was really good, but spending all that time in motels and uh, and in vans that we'd rented <clears throat> just was like, no, no, we don't want to live with each other when we get back home. And folks were finding more partners to hang around with, and Munchkins started evolving. So. Sure. So Duck's Breath kind of grew in terms of the family element. Everybody's sort of moving into different places. When did you get to Oakland? I got to Oakland uh, when I got married. I mean, I'd been seeing a woman in Oakland before that. Um, she was a public radio producer and a very, very good one, my former wife. And she heard about Nevada City from another incredibly talented producer who had moved here. Who? Um, Catherine Stifter is her name. And... We had we had one one baby together, and that's and who is just an, a wonderful 
wonderful 34-year-old woman now. <laughs> Going forward in the timeline, you guys are married when the murder happened, the one that pushed the, the migration out of the Bay Area. Yeah. Your daughter was born by then? Yeah. She was, uh, well, she turned one just before we moved here. Mm-hmm. We moved here like the end of June and she uh, turned one at the end of, uh, at the end of May. So you look at all these different places, including uh, Roseville, you end up in Nevada City. I'm picturing you in the middle of Spring Street, arms out, pirouetting, <laughs> looking at the sky. <laughs> this is it. Was it something like that? or I mean, t- uh, tell me yeah, about the move. Well, yeah, yeah, to some extent it was. Um, uh, I was still managing Duck's Breath at that time and did for quite a while while I was here. Um, and... And, but I think I, I ended up being able to adjust here and I got an office uh, actually across the street uh, over on in the building that's just across from the uh, Nevada Theater uh, and upstairs. And it had the best view of downtown Nevada City of any building, at least as far as I knew of. <laughs> so do you remember how much the rent was? Three hundred and twenty five dollars. I mean, this now this, this was just this is just for. Uh, an office and access to a bathroom, three hundred and twenty-five dollars yeah. a month for a you know, but it, and it was a fairly good sized office. I'd say it's under the size of two rooms in most that would be comparable. In nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety. So it's nineteen ninety. You're working from an office above Broad Street. Yeah, I also already knew some people at uh, KVMR, or was you know knew of them because they had carried a radio show that. Duck's Breath did, that was free to all community and public radio stations. What was that? Tell me about that one. Um, it's basically called Duck's Breath because, like, uh, the guy that thought of the name for the group said, I liked that name because it was an odd concept. And that actually almost captures what we were trying to do in surrealistic and, and screwball comedy combined. Do you have a favorite sketch of Duck's Breath that sticks with you? Well... It's certainly a, a, our art show, um, which is uh, one one of the guys pretending he's doing a, a, a you know an art uh, show on a screen, and you know he clicks his fingers to change it from one picture to another, and then those guys scurry around and become the next picture. And it was just it, it was a real favorite, particularly among people who happen to know the artist. But even if you didn't know the artist, that was. Uh, it was great fun. We were also doing one-act shows as well, um, which included uh, Gonad the Barbarian, <laughs> and which was quite a, quite a popular one. And we actually performed that at the at a national science fiction convention. Uh, they went nuts over it. So we're thinking we're going to get rich. This is going to be great, you know, kind of thing. That never really happened, but uh, w- but we still did some great stuff. In addition to the touring that I talked about, we're, we had done a demo for All Things Considered because we had some contacts there. But nothing happened with the demo except a, a different associate producer there gave me a call and said, this is really good. We'd like you, I'd like you guys to try to do some more for us. And that started us being on uh, uh, National Public Radio's All Things Considered. Back in the uh, early 80s, this is before we, you know, moved to different places. 
And by the time I got here, there were two in Los Angeles and two still in in Nevada City. How did that work? Did you guys just kind of come together for the tours? Yeah. Well, now of course it would be. There's so many simple ways to do it. You know, it would be Zoom. But uh, no, and and then people would come up when we then when they were doing new material, uh, people would come from the place from where they were living and gather usually in San Francisco. So, and I didn't need to be there for most rehearsals, although I tried to keep you know like when the night before they start and and when and and then when they're all over. I'd usually come back here, or I could go. I could commute back and forth almost. Getting back on the timeline, you're in an office of a, above Broad Street. You've moved here with your family. You had heard about KVMR. Tell me when you got into KVMR proper. I started doing some newscasts in the morning, along with uh, they were doing a like a an eight fifteen newscast that went for about uh, ten minutes or so, something like that. It was just two people talking the news of the of the morning. So it was live, and it was live, yeah. But I was always interested in being a uh, being a DJ. That's been a lifetime was a lifetime dream. It never happened, except for here. And I I was in between training classes. Michael Keane and Allison Miller gave me the training, (laughs) and it really helped out. I ended up getting a show, a morning show. Um, right off the bat, but you know, being but after you know, six, seven, eight months of uh, of the program committee and the station deciding what exactly they wanted to do after this one well-known DJ was leaving, kind of thing. Did you transition from the news into your morning show, or were you doing both? Well, we were doing we were doing both for a while, and then we started. We hired a couple of people to start doing news. And the morning news became a, became a staple at that t- time. Um, but it was being done a lot of times with sound bites and stuff like that as opposed to just, just two people uh, reading f- from scripts that they had composed or what have you. Um, and I loved doing uh, the morning shows. I've been doing them now for well, over 25 years. Have you always had the Monday slot? No. I started out on a Tuesday, then moved to a Wednesday, um, and was there for quite a while. Then I moved to a Monday, um, because the Monday host could do Wednesday, but not Monday. And then um, Jerry Ann Van Dyke wanted to do Monday only because she couldn't do Fridays because of a job that she had gotten. So I started doing Fridays, Jerry Ann started doing Mondays. And then I think Jerry Ann said, I gotta do Fridays again. And I said, sure. I love doing Mondays. So you've you've had your morning show for a really long time. You started doing the news, and you got back to the news. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people that, maybe people that have just gotten into the station in the last couple of years know you as the morning update person. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Tell me about that. Tell me about how you're doing the morning update related to the news that you did before at 8.15. Uh, it's much more, much more on the journalism vein as opposed to uh, laughing in the middle of stories and and uh, and being v- very uh, not as journalistic as uh, um, I really try to make the morning update be over the past couple of years now. 
so the original newscast had an had an element of maybe not an element of duck's breath, but it was there was a humorous element to it. Yeah, here and there at least. Yeah, yeah. I would call it more informal mm-hmm. than the the morning updates I've been doing, are, which I think are fairly fairly formal, but still hopefully capture some sense of uh, making people smile at certain things. Mm-hmm. So you said that you enjoy doing morning shows. Yeah. You got to get up really early for your morning show. I know, show. I know. What do you like about it? Well, I I just think it's a, it's a time when uh, there's an audience that is out there, and if we can, that's the kind of audience that we want to start listening um, then or or keep listening if, if they've gotten up at 6 o'clock and are enjoying the show that's on, shows that are now on from 5 until 7. So the morning show is an opportunity to hook them. Yep. Keep them or hook them. Yeah. And, and I've always felt that we've been doing a good job of that. So you also spent some time as the program director of KVMR. Let's talk about that. Um, yeah, I started as a program director in, uh, uh, I think it was 1998. Although I had done some work as the program director in 1996 on an interim basis and actually was uh, an acting manager for about a maybe a month in 1997 when uh, Brian Turhorst was out getting uh, better from an illness that he had. And uh, pretty soon after that, I, be- I became the program director. How long did you do that for? Uh, up until, gee whiz, when was it? <laughs> um, but from 1998 till, uh, I think, um, I'm guessing 2000. Do you enjoy think- it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I really enjoyed it. I loved having a, an office right at the front, um, which I was able to see people when they came in and interact with them and, you know, and uh, become better friends with them and also give them some ideas of some stuff that they might want to try to cover in their show, you know, that sort of thing. You have a relationship with Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, and you were the person that brought Democracy Now! to KVMR. Tell, yeah. Tell me that story. Well, we aired Democracy Now! in 1996 as a first-time show. That's when it started. Um, but we carried it only until the end of 1996. And then it was my idea on a day called September 11th of 2001 that because the information we were getting from BBC... Um, was starting to match some of the information being given out on U.S. stations and that there was another story to be told. And it was being told by uh, Amy Goodman and uh, the Democracy Now! crew out of of New York, just several blocks from where it happened. And... I figured I called I called KPFA and said, "Could you put us on hold?" And the guy was saying, "I, I guess we could." And I'll say, "Here's why: We want to broadcast what you're broadcasting. That is, Democracy Now coming to us live all day today. Um, and we we would also like to pick up what's going on in the Bay Area. So if KPFA comes on with news, we'd like to try to carry that." And 
And so we were able to have to get those two points of view that day and getting our own points of view from the people that we were able to contact across the country and uh, and people to talk to here about what their reaction was to uh, to what was going on out there. And and of course, Utah Phillips was able to chime in and and did did an entire show about uh, about just that. About September 11th. Yeah. And and its impact, and it's a show that uh, he and I started. Actually, I mean, I have to give him full credit for all of the creativity and the originality and the writing. Mine was engineering and producing and keeping him on time, and giving him feedback on the show. You're talking about Loafer's Glory. About Loafer's Glory, yeah. When did Which, that start? It started in 1997, and uh, we continued until uh, actually. Mostly 2000, but uh, we did some special shows after that, one of which was uh, on, on September 11th of, uh, uh, well, we didn't do it that day. We did it a couple of days after that and got that show out to the Pacifica Radio Network. So for people who don't know about Utah or about Loafer's Glory, tell us about that. Well, um, Utah Phillips was an incredible folk singer. Um, he was an activist from, from his heart. Uh, he was just somebody who, uh, he listened to people. When he went out on tour, he didn't stay in the hotel or the motel. He felt it was his job to get to know the city that he was going to be performing in. And he'd go from store to store or from some place where there was a gathering of people just to learn as much as he could about that place. And he had played so many times, we would get out a map of the United States and have him throw a dart. And wherever it was, we said, okay, Utah, what about that place? And nine times out of 10, he could tell us a story about the place or about something around that place. It was just fascinating, you know. And so Loafer's Glory was an opportunity for him to tell those stories? Yeah. Did he play music? Yes, he did. Yes, he played some music, but he also played his musical favorites, which was great fun. I mean, I'd say about tw uh, 20 minutes or so of the program, maybe even 30 was music, um, hour-long shows. And to me, um, it's one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. He did not want to have a video documentary about him. He did not want to write an autobiography. Um, he didn't want to do those things, but he sure loved doing Lofer's Glory. And I think part of it was because he could say things that weren't going on and make fun of them. Like I remember uh, uh, when he that and I... That were not going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, we did, I remember that uh, the two of us and Joe McHugh, who, uh, uh, who was a a guy that likes to do sound of sound effects. Uh, a couple of Fourth uh, uh, of July parades here. Uh, one of my favorite things, which did happen, was Utah saying, "Oh, and look what look what's coming down there. There's a perfectly wonderful old Mustang convertible with a congressman stuffed in it." <laughs> he said it much better than me, but I think I, that would put a smile on your face. <laughs> and then we had make-believe sound effects in the background, almost like there was a war going on <laughs> over, the, over the parade. And just having all sorts of fun or 
you know, in the middle of a bright, sunny day, the sounds of thunderstorms coming down Broad Street. <laughs> so it was just a great, a great lark of fun. That was live? Some, well, usually it was taped, but uh, no, I take that back. Usually they were done actually live. Um, uh, and a few were taped here and there. What time did they run? Sunday mornings, uh, generally from 11 to noon, I think was the uh, usual time. Sounds like a perfect time slot for that. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Um, I, I just, I'm trying to think if there's anything. I, my experience goes back to junior high school. I was, learned how to use um, a, uh, oh, I can't even remember what they're called, but it was sort of like a Xerox machine, but not quite as. Mimeograph. Mimeograph, yes. Um, I was running a, a mimeographed newspaper for the intermediate school. I mean, it was just basically me and two or three other people. And I think we were handwriting in the headlines. <laughs> no kidding. But um, anyway, but it was just something, it was a real start. And then when I got into high school, um, I was doing student politics. In Port, this is in Port Huron, Michigan, by the way. Um, and I was doing some politics and some this and some that. But by my sophomore year, my dad had been transferred to Rockford, Illinois. And so that's where I started working in, at the Guilford High School Voyager newspaper, which I really enjoyed doing. And there were like, there were like four of us. It was sort of like a, we have two editors and two assistant editors or co-editors or whatever. And basically the four of us worked together on the paper, but we had a lot more people because it was an, an actual journalism class where there were requirements to write for the paper, which was, which was good because it gave us a really good selection of articles to choose from and things like that. And I just love that. And also one of the things that happened was newspapers started running posters, you know, two-page full posters of different entertainment acts. And I got permission. I got permission to do Bonnie and Clyde, but not the Graduate, because I think a Graduate had a stiffer uh, warning because of you know sex. Though the Graduate was a movie um, was a movie starring oh gosh who was it Dustin they, Hoffman. Yes, exactly. So you got permission to do a movie poster. Yeah. Well, this this was from still photography. So. They, they would be fine with it. I, this was from uh, the school administration. They were worried about the graduate, but weren't worried about Bonnie and Clyde. But my favorite one to get done was um, a picture of the band that was uh, really on fire uh, with uh, Guilford people who liked bands and liked da dancing and going to concerts and stuff like that. And it was a group called the Grim Reapers. Three of them went to Madison after high school and met up with another guy from Rockford who was a singer in another band at East High School, which was our major rivals. Anyway, the four of them formed a band. I can't remember the its first name that they had, but their second name was Cheap Trick. Wow. And they are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You brought up your early days in your very first days in journalism. So let's chart your progress through the world of journalism. 
So you started with a junior high newspaper. There was four of you. Then you got to high school. Were you in journalism classes in high school? Um, yes, I was. Yes, I was. Um, and that, that was in Rockville, Illinois. And uh, we did the Guilford Voyager. And we also, and I also uh, spearheaded us having some color uh, photography in it on page one, at least for special issues kind of thing. Um, and I also won the Most Valuable Staffer Award there, which is kind of cute, but it was really nice and uh, felt really good. And then you went on to college in Iowa? Yeah, where I wasn't involved so much in journalism at the beginning, although I was writing up stuff because I was a, an activist in the dormitories. And one of the things that I did do, which drew, uh, this was done only to try to get press. And that was, at that time, women still had hours that they had to be inside the dormitory at a certain hour. It was like midnight on weekends or on Friday and Saturday. But it was like 9 a.m. or 8 or 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. weekdays. So we decided to violate the code of conduct publicly. The Daily Iowan newspaper came. A photographer was there from the newspaper. And one of my friends and his girlfriend, uh, she stayed downstairs to be legal. But Punkin, her daughter, came upstairs and, and at 18 months violated the code of conduct. And the head resident um, was notified by phone that there was a female in my apartment. He did nothing about it. I think he had an idea. And uh, so we used that and said, no, in the dormitories, there should be no visitation, you know, um, or whatever the students choose, not what the head resident of the dormitory or the, the head of the dormitory, dormitories overall, should, uh, were, were making the policy. And the women's hours were gone within months. And the visitation policies were still in place, but were never being enforced unless, it, unless it's a situation, you know, whatever. The two roommates disagree <laughs> or something. So a successful campaign. You did eventually write for the college paper because I know that you became editor. Yeah. Uh, I was writing columns and I was writing all sorts of stuff and uh, and I really enjoyed it. I was actually a, a work study student the first year, and then uh, the second year <clears throat> I became the editor, and I was able to through the work study program, which if you're of a certain age, you can qualify for having a good chunk. I believe it was seventy five percent of your salary paid by the federal government. Something like that. I mean, these are salaries are not very big. My salary when I was the editor there was um, $100 a week. And I would tell you, I was there 100 hours a week. <laughs> or, all, or almost. It was really just a lot of fun. But it was also, there was a lot of serious stuff going on as well. We had huge demonstrations against the war. And 
one of my favorites was supposedly some guys in the dorm across from us were going to do a panty raid. And we said, no, this is May 4th. This is the day when four people, I believe it was, were killed at Kent State. And we said, this ain't no panty raid. We're going to go over there and we're going to invite the women to come out and demonstrate at the old Capitol, which was, is the main building at the University of Iowa campus. And that started demonstrations that went on day after day, night after night, until the president actually gave students the option of going home and leaving school and taking whatever their grades were at that time. Because he didn't want to close it completely, because that would, you know, the Republicans would have been all over him. <laughs> well, they were anyway. In fact, one of the Republicans that was all over him is still a U.S. senator. Who's that? Charles Grassley. And he's been a U.S. senator since 1980. Wow. That's over 40 years. <laughs> so, so let's talk about um, your retiring. Yeah. I, what I've been saying is um, that I've, you know, that as you may have noticed, sometimes I can't remember the exact word that I want, even though I'm describing it to you. And I decided that it was happening once a day. And I said, well, if it starts happening more than once a day, I think it's time for me to, uh, to leave. And it started happening about twice an hour. <laughs> and I still actually, I've been showing, actually they've texted me no signs of Alzheimer's that they can, that they can see. But, um, so I, my, what I was then saying was, okay, I've been here for 25 and a half years. I'm going to take time off until I can figure out um, what's the word for or who was that. And when I got those back, I'll come back and do another 25 and a half years. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Good. It made you smile, Claudio. So I want to make something clear, though. You're retiring, but you're not giving up your show. No, You're I'm still, still going to be, yeah, I'm, I'm going from, uh, I'm going from uh, three hours and 28 minutes a week to three hours, period. <laughs> Although there's actually some other shows. Uh, for instance, I, I'm an engineer on Ga the Garden Forum with Kathy Cavill. So those 28 minutes, you're referring to the morning update. Yeah. <laughs> Which you know, has been a really great run. People have commented. They really enjoy that. Steve, I got to say, um, I really appreciate how kind you've been to me. I've been here at the station first as a freelancer, first as a volunteer uh, for quite a few years now. I think I got in in 2016. And I just want to say that I really appreciate how kind you've been. You've been a mentor to me and a friend and uh I'm really glad that you're sticking around. I'm glad that the morning show is is not going anywhere. Yeah. And I think we're going to I think we're going to have some fun in November on Thursday, November 9th at least. This is these are this is all tentative, but I think it's pretty well set in stone. So, take your pick of those two. Um, but there's going to be a uh, a roast and toast Steve Baker celebration or 
whatever. <laughs> it's going to be a good time. Yeah, at, over at the Miner's Foundry, probably starting around 6 o'clock. And we're hoping that some folks have uh, had some fun with me or, or, want to ma- or want to make fun of me for something that I was doing <laughs> um, over the past 25 years. We know there's a lot of folks, at, certainly at KVMR, and this is going to be open to everybody. No cover charge, uh, and we just think it's going to be a, a lot of fun and a chance for some old friends to come. Uh, in, including my daughter, who lives now, as I said, in Sonoma, but she's going to come over for this one. And I think a lot of other folks that may come in from out of town as well, we're hoping. Stay tuned for that. There'll be lots of information going out. Steve, if you if you would... And, and it's open to the public. This is not just a KVMR thing. It's like if you're a listener, you know, probably good if you're a listener, because <laughs> otherwise uh, you'd go, what's this guy doing up on stage? I don't know him. <laughs> So, Steve, if you had to, if I pressed you for it, what would be, I'm looking for that soundbite to close it with, you know, that inspirational soundbite where everything gets a little brighter, the audio gets richer, and you impart these words of wisdom from, you know, your experience in journalism for your entire life, from from radio for over 25 years. What would you say? Well... I think that community radio um, brings a free-form style, a, large, a largely free-form style, to the best it can be. And I am telling you, I, I just heard show after show here on KVMR that uh, brings tears to my eyes of, of happiness when I, when I was program director. I'm program director, and that is on this station. Cool. <laughs> Yet there are so many things that we need to talk about and try to take care of and try to get along with other people. And there's just so many things. But I, I just see it just becoming, just becoming stronger and stronger at this station. And if this is something that, uh, that you want to support, um, please support it with whatever you can do. Some folks can't make a monetary gift at this time. But you could become a volunteer if you've got a few hours here and there and help us out that way. I mean, there are just, it's just a wonderful thing, thing to be part of. And I'm glad to see that it's growing still and that we're doing, we're doing well as far as I know. Well, Steve, it was really great talking to you. I really appreciate the time that we've spent today. And thank you for all the wonderful things that you have done. And I can't believe how much you've grown in the uh, two or three years that uh, you've been doing this job now. Thank as you, News Steve. director here. And all I see is continued growth. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Love you. Love you too, man. Love you too. 